Good afternoon. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President here for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic region, and we could not be more delighted to welcome uh, Secretary of State for Defense Michael Fallon here to CSIS. I was explaining to the Secretary, boy, the, the news cycle has been so quiet and so slow the last few days that uh, we were so glad he could come here and help uh, elevate uh, our discussion, but uh, he comes at an incredibly important time, uh, certainly on the heels of several days of incredible news, not only uh, security-related issues, whether that was the North Korean launch of uh, an ICBM, uh, but also as we watch unfold the historic meeting between President Trump and President Putin uh, today. Secretary Fallon, thankfully, is a frequent visitor to CSIS. He was here two years ago in March, and the topic of the discussion was in defense of a rules-based order, how that transatlantic relationship can be used. And I think now in today's discussion, we will again look at the defense of the rules-based order and see where we go from here. Secretary Fallon uh, assumed uh, Secretary of State uh, for Defense his position on July 15, 2014. Two days later, a Russian Buke missile shot down MH17. That was his first few days on the job. Three years later, two elections later, one referendum later, Secretary Fallon, you've had an extraordinary tenure already in your three years. We are delighted that you are here with us. We have so much to discuss, and we look forward to your comments. Colleagues, please join me in thanking and welcoming Secretary Fallon to CSIS. Heather, thank you, and good afternoon. It's great to be back in the United States and to be speaking at this world-renowned center whose ideas have influenced generations of defense thinkers on both sides of the pond. This is my first opportunity to visit the United States after our recent election. And let me reassure you that post-election, our government remains strong and we remain committed to delivering stronger defense. Now, there are some who've taken a, a look at Britain in the past few months after an unpredictable election. I'm not sure there's another kind of election these days. Uh, have looked at the negotiations over Brexit, have seen the series of appalling terrorist incidents in Manchester and, and London, and have wondered whether Britain is getting distracted in any way from our international role. That wouldn't be the first time our critics have been wrong. I remember that first visit as Defence Secretary back in 2015. That was before rather than after the general election of that year. Yet some of the concerns expressed were all too familiar. They said we weren't committed to the 2%. They noted Parliament's refusal to endorse strikes against Assad's chemical weapons. They said we wouldn't be committing to two aircraft carriers. They said we wouldn't act in the face of trouble. So it's worth reminding ourselves just what happened next. First, 
we did invest. Later that year, 2015, we conducted an ambitious strategic defence and security review, committing to continue to meet NATO's 2% target. Since then, not only have we done what we said we would do, but we've also chosen to grow our defence budget year on year by at least 0.5% ahead of inflation. NATO figures published last week confirmed that we are spending, we are spending more than 2% and we are also meeting the target to spend 20% of that on new equipment. We're using that growing budget to purchase, to develop and to build a raft of high-end kit from P-8 aircraft and drones to Apache helicopters and armoured vehicles, from fifth-generation F-35 fighters to two aircraft carriers, the most powerful ships ever built in Britain. And we were delighted uh, two weeks ago to witness HM Queen Elizabeth embark for the first time on her sea trials. Our carrier strike plans, thanks to your continuing support, and we have over 120 aircrew and pilots training here on 10 F-35 aircraft, those carrier strike plans are already becoming a reality. We're building, following a successful vote in Parliament, we are building a new generation of nuclear ballistic submarines to maintain our ultimate nuclear deterrent. And we are adapting to an age of information warfare, investing in equipment with the sensors and receptors to handle a superabundance of information, transforming our military structures to cope with the virtual environment, bringing our signals and intelligence corps together under a shared command to collate, to analyse, to disseminate cyber information more efficiently and effectively, and training up a new generation of cyber warriors to strengthen our networks and tackle our vulnerabilities. My second point today is that we're doing more than investing. We are also acting. When I spoke here in March 2015, that was still under the shadow of that 2013 Syria vote against taking military action to deal with the use of chemical weapons. Yet by the end of 15, the new parliament had voted overwhelmingly to extend the airstrikes we were conducting in Iraq to Syria itself. And today we're performing a pivotal role in the 71-member Counter-Dash Global Coalition. Attacking Dash positions with our aircraft, training local forces. We've trained over 50,000 Iraqi and Peshmerga troops, using our offensive cyber capabilities to disrupt Dash activity in both Iraq and in Syria, and an overall contribution of airstrikes second only to that of the United States. It's striking to think that when I took office just three years ago, Daesh were closing in on the gates to Baghdad. Today they are close to feet, to defeat in their last city of Mosul. But the counter-Daesh campaign is 
far from the United Kingdom's only operation. We've been going global. We're not just in the Middle East. We continue in Afghanistan, where we've committed to increasing troop numbers again after the uplift we announced last summer, building counterterrorism capacity, improving the resilience of Afghan forces, strengthening the Afghan Air Force, training the next generation of Afghan officers. We're in Africa too, training Somalians to fight al-Shabaab, assisting South Sudan in the midst of an appalling humanitarian crisis. In total, this afternoon, we have more than 10,000 British servicemen and women deployed or in bases and involved in some 25 operations around the globe. So Britain has delivered, Britain is delivering, and we will continue to do so. But my third point is that we will do so in partnership. We are stronger, of course, when we work together. And the fact is today that our nations are facing a wave of multiple, concurrent, diverse, global threats from Islamist extremism, from North Korea testing missiles, and as we've seen, firing off missiles, from Russia, more aggressive, as we've seen in Ukraine and Syria, from Iran sponsoring terror, from the insidious spread of misinformation and cyber attacks. These are challenges that demand an international response. So as we deliver on our domestic vote to leave the political framework that is the European Union, we see Brexit as an opportunity not to step back from European defence, but to step up to strengthen Euro-Atlantic security. In particular, we are strengthening our bonds within NATO, the cornerstone of our defence, continuing to deter in the light of Russian aggression. We are leading NATO's enhanced forward presence in Estonia with 800 British troops. We are working alongside the United States' enhanced forward presence in Poland. This year, Britain leads the alliance's very high readiness joint task force. This year, I have dispatched RAF typhoons to Romania for southern area policing to police the skies over the Black Sea. This month, Royal Navy ships take over for a year half of NATO's maritime missions in the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and the Aegean. We're also in NATO right behind the United States in calling for all members to start paying their way. Your president was absolutely correct to say that European nations need to do more to shoulder their share of the burden. Since Britain and the United States stood together to demand action back at the Wales summit, 24 of the 29 member nations have now raised their game and the alliance has cumulatively increased its defence spending by around $46 billion. But money isn't the only NATO issue. 
Forged in a monochrome world of the Cold War, NATO must now transform itself into a far more agile organization. Secretary Mattis and I are working together for faster decision-making, better prioritization, and less bureaucracy in the way that NATO works. We also want to see NATO adopting a 360-degree approach, producing a coherent force capable of meaningful action with a modern, integrated approach to defense and to deterrence, playing an enhanced role in the fight against international terror. Now, our global influence as a country doesn't just come from NATO. It comes also from a wealth of bilateral alliances. Last week, we took a significant step forward by expanding the UK-led Joint Expeditionary Force to include Sweden and Finland. That gives us a nine-nation armed force of like-minded northern European countries able to deploy a force of up to 10,000 personnel. Augmenting our ability to respond to threats in the North Sea and the North Atlantic, but also giving us the adaptability and agility to deploy very quickly to humanitarian tasks, to rescue our citizens from crisis hotspots, to conduct more minor military missions. And we've recently used our purchase of your P8s to do more trilaterally with the United States and with Norway. Last week, I signed an agreement with Secretary Mattis and our Norwegian uh, colleague to enable closer cooperation on the training and logistics and support of those P8s that need to address the change security environment and increase Russian submarine activity in the North Atlantic. Now, it should go without saying that when it comes to bilateral relationships, the United States remains our strongest ally. Since I spoke here back in 2015, our partnership has only strengthened further. I've already touched on the operations across the world, from Europe to the Middle East to Africa and Afghanistan. But the truth is that we are now more integrated at every level, working in each other's headquarters, flying in each other's uh, planes, training on each other's ships, collaborating on everything from nuclear capabilities, including sharing a common missile compartment and intelligence, to autonomy. And we have the prospect now of United States F-35 fighters flying from the decks of our, F our aircraft carriers and our planes in turn flying from yours. Back in 2015, the United States helped support our strategic defense review. And today, as you turn to your own national defense strategy, I would like to share just one conclusion drawn from that experience of working together on our defense review. And that is the need for a stronger modern deterrence. Last year saw the passing of the Nobel Prize winning economist Thomas Schelling, a great American who helped codify 
our current notions of deterrence. Were he with us today, he would doubtless remind us that deterrence is about much more than the atom bomb or the hydrogen bomb. It's about ensuring that our adversaries always know that the cost of an attack will be far greater than any potential reward. In the Cold War, that meant massing armies along the borders of the Iron Curtain whilst building up vast nuclear arsenals. Yet in an age of grey zone conflict with proxy, non-conventional threats, sometimes anonymous, often amorphous, adding to the conventional and nuclear dangers and threatening to undermine the rules-based international order on which our security depends, our deterrence must necessarily evolve. Agility will be critical. It will demand constant strategic planning to prepare for a broader range of threats. It will require perpetual persistence to continually countering cyber intrusion, to rebut the malicious misinformation of our adversaries with a faster truth. It will seek new innovations in disruptive capabilities, whether big data or autonomous systems, to stay ahead of the curve. Above all, it will be about the art of persuasion. Last week, I spoke at the Margaret Thatcher Security Conference in London. Its theme was whether or not we are witnessing the decline and fall of the West, whether our Western values were up to overcoming these new and present dangers. I argued then that not only can we rise to this challenge, but that we must and that we will. We're not being attacked by these adversaries because we've failed, because our values are redundant. On the contrary, we're being attacked because we won, because we succeeded in spreading these values and beliefs across the world. And today, we are recovering our confidence in them. But in an age of contested interests and confrontation, always pray to doubters, where our adversaries seek to use social media, cyber warfare, and misinformation to rewrite the Western narrative, to extend their spheres of influence, to try to limit those freedoms that we championed. We have to learn how to remake those original arguments. Because in so doing, that will make our societies far more resilient, far less susceptible to the sophistry of our foes. Now, that requires political leadership, and no two nations are better equipped to make the case for the West than the United States and the United Kingdom. We share the same values of democracy, of justice, of freedom, of tolerance, values we fought for throughout the past century. But we didn't just fight. We also championed the causes of liberty, the free market, the innovation that technology demands. We gave people ever greater opportunity to live wealthier, healthier, happier, freer lives. So if we get this right, if we present our case 
strongly enough again, we will do more than simply build resilience in our countries. We can re reawaken the hopes of those still living under oppressive regimes. In the 1980s, President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher succeeded in shattering the shackles of communism, not just because they railed against the cruel and desolate creeds that lurked behind the Iron Curtain, but because they presented the vision of a better life. I remember a few years back being struck by Sharansky's description of what he called that beautiful moment when news of Reagan's evil empire speech reached Siberia. It was, he wrote, the brightest, most glorious day. Finally, a spade had been called a spade. Finally, Orwell's newspeak was dead. President Reagan had from that moment made it impossible for anyone in the West to continue closing their eyes to the real nature of the Soviet Union. So today, it's not enough just to speak out against the aggressive behavior of Russia in Ukraine or in Syria, or to urge our adversaries to act in accordance with international law. We must also give hope to people across the world of a better way of life. Secretary Mattis, my friend, said in Germany last week, marking the 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan, he said, we stand for freedom and we will never surrender the freedom of our people. Back in 1996, the Iron Lady delivered a speech in Fulton, Missouri, where, of course, Churchill had coined the Iron Curtain phrase 50 years before. And she said, and I quote, there are rare moments when history is open and its course changed by means such as these. We may be at just such a moment now. I suggest to you this afternoon that we have reached such a moment. Once more, we look to the United States to recapture the spirit of Fulton, to provide deterrence for a darker age, to remake the case for the West and to follow the mission statement of this very center in, I quote, sustaining American prominence and prosperity as a force for good in the world. And as you do that, I want you to rest assured that a bolder global Britain, as in the Great War, as in the Second World War, as in the Cold War, will continue standing by your side, strengthening our transatlantic bonds and supporting everywhere the course of freedom. Thank you. Secretary Fallon, thank you. Uh, sometimes we need a dose of inspiration, and uh, we needed that. Thank you very, very much. In some ways, I think the, the challenge right now of any think tank is where to begin, what subject do we, do we jump into? Um, I think I'm going to start with the subject of the day, and that is Russia. Sure. Uh, 
And uh, President Trump uh, stated in his speech in Warsaw on Thursday about the bedrock nature of the Article 5 commitment, uh, something that was not accomplished at the NATO leaders meeting in Brussels. You've just recently uh, completed a successful NATO defense ministerial. Help us understand um, how things are going with the deployment of the NATO battalions. NATO has had a challenge of deployment, getting them, getting forces there quickly, getting the kit there, getting the, the pre-positioned equipment. What has your uh, experience been and, and the, the, the British forces experience in Estonia in preparation for the placement of a battalion to defend Estonia should that become necessary? Well, we've, we've seen a resurgence of NATO. We've seen a revival of NATO right back from the summit in Wales in 2014. We've seen, as I've said, a number of NATO members now begin to increase their defense spending again after some years of decline. And uh, we've seen uh, more and more of them now start to commit to a date to reach the 2% target. And uh, your president's rhetoric has, has only been helpful in that. I mean, it has helped to uh, um, encourage those other allies to be clearer about their defense spending. But we've also, since that same summit, seen uh, a revival in NATO's seriousness about deployment, exactly your point. We saw commitment then to the Very High Readiness Task Force. That stood up last year. We commanded this year. Uh, I was there on exercise with them in Romania, exercise noble jump, and we saw several thousand troops um, from um, my country, your country, but also from Spain, from uh, um, a whole series of uh, some of the newer members of NATO detachments uh, deploying. And that is the major response force, if you like, the fire brigade of NATO, ready to deploy. We agreed in Warsaw just a year ago on enhanced forward presence. And within a year, and this I think would have been unthinkable in the NATO of five or ten years ago, within a year we've seen um, all four battle groups deployed in the three Baltic states and in Poland. And we've seen a number of member states of NATO come together in different detachments, fitting in alongside each other. We have a company of, a large company of French troops alongside our battle group. And indeed, we've put a company into your battle group in, uh, in Poland. And we've seen these different formations, all of which I think has added to the collective sense of purpose uh, in NATO. And it was quite an emotional moment standing there uh, in Tapa in Estonia for the stand-up parade of the British and French troops when the president of Estonia said to me, this is the first time we've had foreign troops on Estonian soil as friends. Uh, well, that was quite a moment and showed you just how important these deployments are for the eastern flank of NATO. But I find them encouraging. For those of us who've always believed in NATO, that NATO has begun to revive itself. Now, we need to carry that through with the modernization reforms I mentioned that uh, Secretary Mattis and I are championing, which would lead to faster decision-making and uh, a reduced uh, bureaucracy. But there can be no doubting now in Moscow that NATO is an organization that is uh, uh, ready to defend itself. We're watching very closely. Uh, Russia will uh, 
implement a very significant military exercise, uh, Zapad, every four years. Uh, this major exercise comes to the Western Military District. Some believe uh, a combination of over 100,000 forces will be deployed from the Kola Peninsula uh, along uh, NATO's uh, eastern flank. Any particular concerns you have? What are you watching for as we watch this major exercise unfold in the well, summer, September? Uh, thank you. We'll be watching Zapad 17 extremely closely. These are exercises, these are much larger exercises than anything that NATO can uh, carry out. And, and in that sense, they are more provocative than any NATO deployment. We've been absolutely transparent with Russia about our deployments, uh, the numbers involved, the armaments they carry, the purpose of these deployments, which is, uh, is absolutely defensive. It's their aim to reassure. Uh, they are defensive deployments, and that is uh, you know, a rather different approach to what we see uh, with Zapad. But uh, as uh, Moscow conducts that exercise with its troops and its troops from, and troops from Belarusia, um, there should be no doubt that uh, you know, NATO, NATO has demonstrated through its enhanced forward presence and the uh, very high readiness task force has demonstrated its willingness to uh, back up its support and uh, to have the president reconfirm the United States commitment to Article 5 yesterday was, was the icing on top. I want to turn a little bit uh, closer to shore, uh, and I'm so glad you mentioned about the cooperation both bilaterally and then trilaterally with the uh, maritime patrol aircraft. There's a growing concern about Russian anti-submarine warfare activity in the North Atlantic, specifically. Uh, think tanks here in Washington are holding uh, tabletop exercises on the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. We haven't done that in a very long time. Uh, we've written a report recently that said we really need to beef up NATO's uh, command structure. Uh, MARCOM, uh, there's much more of a UK leadership role in anti-submarine warfare. What are your thoughts on that? You've actually had some back and forth with uh, Russian Defense Ministry officials about the status of aircraft carriers, both theirs and the Queen Elizabeth. Uh, you might want to reflect on that a bit, please. Well, we've seen a bit of carrier envy, I think. Only carrier to, only to be, envy, okay. Uh, only to be expected when you sail uh, you know, a new 65,000-ton aircraft carrier. And by the way, we're building two of them. There are only three other countries in the world building aircraft carriers at the moment. Um, but what we've seen you know, uh, in, in recent years is a significant increase in Russian submarine activity in, in the North Sea. And we need as an alliance, as well as, uh, as well as ourselves, we need to respond to that to protect our nuclear deterrent, um, to protect our carriers, uh, but also to protect NATO. And again, I alluded to the need for NATO to, look three at its, to take a 360-degree view of its security. There's been an intense focus on the northeastern flank of NATO, where allies like Estonia feel particularly vulnerable. Uh, there's been concern in the southeast quadrant too, um, but it's you know it's also right we look right round NATO, and that we work more closely together. And the fact that Norway, Britain, and uh, the United States are operating the same aircraft gives us huge potential for more collaboration. Uh, in training, in logistics, in support. Already our aircrew are flying, uh, are training up on, on your P-8s, and uh, we look forward to the first deployment of our, the first arrival of our P-8s uh, towards the end of this decade in, in Lossiemouth in Scotland. I'm going to finish up the Russia question uh, by noting, as you are uh, uh, 
doing your deployments in the Black Sea, we've, U.S. Uh, vessels as well as aircraft have experienced some very, as our military officials would say, unprofessional behavior by Russian pilots uh, coming within five feet of U.S. aircraft, buzzing the USS Donald Cook in the Black Sea. Any special concerns you have as you increase your maritime presence in the Black Sea and, of course, your, your air, air patrol role? Anything you're particularly concerned about uh, Russian behavior? Well, we are concerned about uh, Russian long-range aviation, where we're not notified of flights to the edge of our air, air information region, where Russian aircraft don't respond when we send up uh, our jets to uh, warn them off. Um, that is uh, provocative. Uh, it can be dangerous. It often involves the diversion of civilian flights that might happen to be in the area. And there's a capacity always for uh, for misunderstanding and miscalculation. So uh, we continue to talk to Russia about that. We, we use our, our communication with Russia specifically to ensure that where possible we can uh, deconflict and where possible we can very readily de-escalate any tension that arises. Moving towards the Middle East, um, you're also the maritime mission will also be in the Aegean and the Mediterranean, as you uh, imagined. The migration crisis, uh, the the reports over the last several weeks, we're really seeing an uptick in, in migrants uh, attempting an incredibly dangerous crossing of the central Mediterranean. Um, what's the US, UK's position on, on, on the migration crisis, your naval role, the NATO and the European Union, uh, obviously the European Union taking a leadership role, what is the maritime strategy uh, here? And, and where, again, a strong UK role in that, in that position? Well, it's a good example of where Britain remains and will remain uh, involved in the security of what is our continent. It is the security of Europe matters to us as much as to members of the European Union. Since the beginning of the European Union mission, there are two missions, as you know, the European Union mission in the central Mediterranean and the NATO mission in the Aegean. Uh, since the beginning of the European Union mission in the central Mediterranean, we've had a Royal Navy ship there, and we have a Royal Navy ship there uh, today, helping to save lives in the Mediterranean. Now, we're seeing um, a huge increase in the number of migrants who are uh, tackling this journey, and um, we do need to do something about this, not simply to uh, control migration into Europe, but frankly also to save lives. There are far too many setting out on what is an incredibly dangerous journey. And people are, uh, there are people making a lot of money out of this particular trade. So as well as uh, saving lives, we think it important to start to tackle the, the business model of the people smugglers to make sure they cannot profit any longer from this trade. And that means working with the Libyan authorities to uh, build up their Coast Guard effort which is very slow work, but necessary work if, we're to police the, if they are to police their own territorial waters to stop uh, migrant boats getting to the edge of those waters where it becomes even more dangerous to attempt the journey across to uh, India to work w with Libya and to work on a policy of returns for those who are clearly not refugees, who are um, uh, clearly economic migrants that... Uh, uh, attempting to cross illegally uh, so that they can be returned properly to where they came from. So turning more uh, to Syria, we're hearing some early reports from the G20 conversations that uh, Syria looking at potential ceasefires. We have talked a lot about ceasefires. Um, what's your sense of where, 
where things are going in Syria. There's been some discussion about these uh, safety zones. Uh, the military footprint for that is daunting. Two uh, major powers, the United States and Russia, are in very close proximity to each other. Give us your sense of, of Syria right now. What is the future military picture look like? Well, the recent history of the Syrian civil war is littered with ceasefires. And it would be nice, you know, one day to have a ceasefire. Um, none of these have turned out to be ceasefires. Um, they've been uh, broken uh, persistently and broken by, by the regime and indeed broken by Russian activity itself. So, you know, we welcome any ceasefire, but uh, let's see it. Let's see the results uh, on the ground. Where these uh, safety zones are proposed, you know, let's not uh, have the civilian population misled. If they can be properly enforced, then they are thoroughly welcome. We can then get in the United Nations humanitarian aid that uh, was promised. So far as um, deconfliction de is concerned, uh, yes, we have the, through the coalition and through the United States, we have the deconfliction machinery uh, that enables uh, uh, both the coalition and Russia and the regime to avoid flying aircraft at the same time in exactly the same space. And it's important, you know, we continue to, to work that machinery. But the battle space, particularly in North Syria and to some extent down in the southwest, is getting incredibly complex. And again, the capacity for miscalculation we've already seen, sadly, around Atamf. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to work even harder at that. This is an unfair question, but hypothetically, uh, if the Syrian regime would, would use chemical weapons, would the United Kingdom be prepared to assist militarily in an attack? Well, we made it very clear last time, I made it clear to Secretary Mattis when we reviewed the various options that uh, your administration was considering just prior to the last attack, I made it very clear that the United Kingdom would support that attack. Uh, and we did support that attack uh, publicly. The use of chemical weapons is illegal, it's, it's barbaric, and uh, you know, innocent lives were lost. And we are in no doubt that the source of the original chemical weapons attack was the regime. It was only regime aircraft that were in the air at that uh, particular time. So uh, any effort to, uh, uh, to deal with that or to forestall a chemi further chemical weapons attack will have the United Kingdom's full support. I'm going to keep spinning my globe, and now I'm going to move to Afghanistan. Ten years from now, as you're explaining to your children and grandchildren what the role of, of the British military forces were in Afghanistan and what it accomplished, what would that story be? Well, our role was twofold. It was first to reduce the threat of uh, these transnational terror groups operating from Afghanistan, using it as a safe base to attack the West. It was to reduce and then to eliminate that particular threat. It was also to try and build a better future for the people of Afghanistan, um, where we now have a very a democracy, a fragile democracy, but a democracy nonetheless in which I think uh, six or seven million people voted in the last uh, election, in which girls are able to be educated in school, in which uh, a, uh, uh, there has been a, an increase in the quality of life in large parts of Afghanistan. So looking back, you know, our, our, our objectives uh, were noble, to reduce the terror threat and to try and build a better Afghanistan for its own people. Now that campaign, that effort has been far longer than anybody originally foresaw. Um, I concede that. Um, and in the end, of course, it is a battle 
against uh, insurgency that can only be won in the end by local forces that can command the support of the local population. So I hope uh, you know, over the next uh, uh, few years we will continue to improve the resilience of those forces. Um, that is why we are uplifting our commitment again, having uplifted again previously last year, um, to strengthen the training of Afghan forces, to improve the Air Force, to improve their uh, counterterrorism effort uh, and, uh, and future officer training. Um, it's, I think for, for many of us, as, as we're watching uh, the story unfold in Afghanistan, seeing an uptick in Russian support to the Taliban, uh, additional regional powers playing a role, in some ways, the last few years, it feels like we have lost ground. Secretary Mattis has uh, called and, and General Nicholson have called for additional forces. Do you think NATO will be able to substantially increase its contribution or its trainers, it's, it's going to be a limited footprint? It feels like we need an additional, dare I say the word, surge, um, but it just doesn't feel as if we want to make that commitment again. Well, we're past the, the danger point of last summer where the previous administration here was, was considering reducing uh, the commitment to uh, Afghan. And uh, we've seen a number of allies now looking at how they too might uplift their commitment. I think in the West, you know, we understand that um, these terror groups are still there. There is still a threat uh, to the West from their operations in, uh, in Afghanistan. I think we also understand that if Afghanistan uh, were to start to collapse as a country, there would be huge implications in terms of migration further further westwards, which, which would eventually end up with us in, in uh, Western Europe. So I hope we can continue to persuade our NATO allies to uh, increase their commitments again on the basis of driving up, reinforcing the resilience of the Afghan forces themselves. In the end, this is a battle they have to win. They've been up against it in the last two or three fighting seasons since uh, we withdrew from combat operations. Um, but it's important they do win through in the end. Well, the last spin of my globe, and then I want to turn to the audience. Uh, let's turn to the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, uh, mentioning North Korea, uh, before we came out here, we were hypothetically saying, you know, um, the United States, I suppose, could ask for an Article 5 commitment if a North Korean ICBM attempted to reach U.S. soil. Would NATO be able to respond in any meaningful way? We've seen where at least six NATO countries have participated in RIMPAC exercises, the UK, of course, participating in that. But really, Europe does not have a physical presence and a capability. Is there a, a, a solution set that our NATO allies can support us in trying to deter uh, North Korean advances in their ICBM capabilities? Well, first of all, we're a long way away from uh, military, op from looking at uh, military options. Um, I think we have to recognize, first of all, this is not just a threat to the United States, nor should the United States be expected to deal with this entirely on its own. This is a threat to the international community, to the region, but to the community as a whole. And it is up to the international community now to redouble its efforts to uh, get to improve uh, the cost to the regime. Uh, of what it is doing. And that means looking at the existing uh, diplomatic efforts, the resolutions that have been passed to the United Nations, ensuring they're being enforced properly, 
adding where necessary new names, new organisations to the list where we have evidence that sanctions are being breached and working harder uh, collectively to ensure that um, the international community is at one in, in dealing with this particular problem. It's a huge challenge. So now let's turn to our audience. Which I ran through my questions. I know they have theirs. Uh, we have uh, colleagues with microphones. If you could please raise your hand, introduce yourself, uh, and ask your question very briefly. We're going to collect a few questions uh, and then have uh, Secretary respond to them in the remaining time. So I think we'll just start to this way. So Max, right here, sir, please. Hi, Kevin Wensing uh, with the Navy League. A uh, quick question on Qatar. Uh, did you discuss Qatar and how that influences U.S. and U.K. relations with the uh, other Arab countries, you know, having the embargo on Qatar? Thank you so much. We'll keep moving across, sir, right there. A microphone is coming your way. Thank you, Secretary, for your speech. Um, Jonathan Ward, University of Oxford. I wanted to ask if you could comment further on the scope or potential scope of U.S.-U.K. defense cooperation in Asia, not just on North Korea, but as the whole region sort of changes. And also if you could comment. U.S.-U.K. defense cooperation in Asia. You have to speak very okay. clearly into that. Sorry, right. I just have it a little hard In Asia hearing. as a whole and also potentially in the Indian Ocean. Also curious about um, if you could comment on U.K.-India um, defense cooperation and, and the potential for that going forward, particularly in the maritime and air domains. Thank you. Thank you. I think we'll just take two more questions here, and then I'll come back around for a second round. Right in the back there, please, Donna. Thank you. Hi there, I'm Ty with AT&T. Um, just uh, with the increase in cyber attack from adversaries and with your military presence across the world, can you further discuss the UK strategy on how to increase the security defense of your communication network? Okay, I want to make sure I understand. It's Again, just a UK strategy in... The British uh, strategy on cyber? Yeah. Okay, uh, is there a more specific on offensive capabilities? More defensive. Defensive. Thank you. And sir, there's one more right there. Right, sorry. Uh, the gentleman behind, and then sir, I'll, I promise I'll get you the next round. Thank you. Hi, I'm David Smith of The Guardian. Um, Secretary Tillerson says that in the meeting um, today between President Trump and Putin, that uh, President Trump did press a couple of times, well, several times on the issue of uh, Russia's interference in last year's election. And President Putin. Um, consistently denied it. I'm just interested in your reaction to that and, and more generally whether you have confidence in, in this uh, American administration to um, take a tough line on, Putin, on Vladimir Putin. So I'll just, we'll stop there for a moment. So uh, the uh, challenging issue between the, sure. the GCC and Qatar, yeah. India, uh, cyber, yeah, sure. and yeah. anything else you'd like to offer on okay, the I'll meeting. Okay, I'll do my best. I didn't quite get the detail of some of the questions because of them. I think it's the way the microphone worked. On Qatar, yes. I mean, we want to see this uh, dispute uh, brought to an end. Secretary Tillerson is working extremely hard uh, to do that, to bring that about as a kind of honest broker. He's working in close uh, uh, cooperation with uh, our Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson. And uh, I hope this dispute, as all disputes, I hope in the, you know, we can bring it to a resolution. Um, uh, we have friends right across the Gulf uh, this is a, a, dis a dispute in the family, if you like, in the Gulf. Um, and, uh, you know, we want to see it uh, brought to an end, and we're using all our contacts to uh, try and uh, 
explore various ways of doing that. But the lead is with, uh, is with Secretary Tillerson. On, uh, on Asia, um, we, we are committed uh, on the South China Sea, for example, to exercising the uh, right to freedom of navigation and to fly. We have flown uh, typhoons through the South China Sea last October. We've flown an A400M through the South China Sea, and we think it's very important that uh, we stick to that principle. We continue to work to revive uh, the uh, Five Powers defense arrangement uh, to the south to uh, give more reassurance to uh, members of the Five Powers through regular exercising. And I think you specifically mentioned uh, India. Uh, I was in India uh, in... uh, Uh, April, just before the uh, general election. We're working more closely with India on a number of uh, defense uh, programs, indeed on uh, on a number of uh, projects where we hope to sell jointly into third markets. Um, We're working closely with India on, and there is growing cooperation between uh, our two navies in particular, um, as well as between our, our armies and air forces. So it's a, uh, it's, um, a bilateral cooperation we're investing in uh, very heavily. On cyber, we identified cyber as one of the uh, three or four major threats to our country back in the uh, 2015 SDSR. We think we were right to do so. We earmarked some 1.9 billion sterling to spend over the, um, over the uh, spending period on improving our cyber defenses defending our own defense, improving the resilience of our critical national infrastructure, and also defending, uh, also uh, building up the offensive cyber capabilities that uh, we have already confirmed that we are now employing um, to the, uh, with the coalition against Daesh, and which I have very recently confirmed we would be willing to put at the service of NATO if those capabilities uh, were required. On um, uh, the, the meeting between Putin and, um, and uh, the president, I haven't seen the readout that you seem to have already, you've already got from Secretary Tillerson. I uh, haven't seen that. I have drawn attention in my speech on Russia at St. Andrews University to uh, undoubted uh, Russian interference in, West, in European elections, in the, referendum, in the Netherlands referendum, in the French election, uh, the attempted coup in Montenegro. I'm not going to comment, sadly. Um, I'm not going to comment on, uh, uh, on uh, interference in, in the United States election. Great. I think we have a second round here, and we'll take the cluster of three questions here, and then I'll, I'll loop back around. Sir, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for speaking to us. Uh, Pete Shutley, I'm retired from the State Department, and my question is cyber. Has the British government made a decision on what would be the line that would trigger an Article 5 NATO response. Now, I'm not expecting you to say clearly, yes, this is the line, but maybe you could give us some examples of points below that line and maybe some points clearly above it so that we can get a better idea of what level of cyber attack would trigger Article 5. Thank you, sir. And we'll just pass that microphone right there to the second row. Yep, it is. Uh, Hi, Atarv Gupta. Um, My question is regarding the UK efforts in Mosul and Iraq. Um, After the push of ISIS out of the area, what are the UK's efforts in strengthening the Iraqi government to prevent another power vacuum in the future? 
Yes, uh, Marisa Lino with Northrop Grumman. Uh, with so much going on uh, between our two countries and in the world, is there any issue between on the subject of U.S.-U.K. defense trade that has come up uh, to the table between yourself and your U.S. counterpart? Thank you. Thank you. Let's stop there and then we'll take Let's another Let's stop there. On, um, on cyber, yes, I've been asked this question before. I mean, first of all, we've got uh, NATO to agree now as allies that um, uh, a cyber attack you know, can be construed as an attack under Article 5. I think that's important. Um, that we recognize cyber as a domain alongside the other domains. However, I don't think it's useful to start specifying specific thresholds. I think the danger is if we did that, we'd start to see cyber attacks just below the threshold that we have identified. And I would rather our adversaries were left uh, uncertain as to exactly what the qualifying level of pain is, if you like, before Article 5 would be triggered. On... um, on Mosul, uh, yes, I mean, we, we want to be sure uh, at the end of pushing Daesh out of Iraq, out of uh, uh, Talafar and Hawija and the remaining cities of the middle Euphrates River Valley, if we can get them completely out of Iraq, we want to be very sure we don't have to go back in there and do this as a coalition all over again. You know, 71 countries, an investment over three years, um, a huge... Um, uh, investment for us of uh, RAF uh, strike power of intelligence gathering and training. I said over 50,000 Iraqi troops uh, trained. So what's really important is that it's not simply, we don't just simply get the humanitarian aid in as it's got into uh, East Mosul where uh, the essential services are being restored, schools are being reopened, markets are starting to open again, but that um, there is sufficient stabilization that the Sunni populations of these cities in Nineveh province and Ambar really feel they have a stake in the future of Iraq. So this requires stabilization and political reconciliation. And we need to strengthen the, you know, the Abadi government's determination to follow through the military campaign with that political work that should, uh, in the end, prevent us having to do this all over again. Uh, UK-US relationship, Uh, um, there is um, huge investment as a result of our SDSR in American uh, kit, if I can put it as crudely as that. Uh, We also therefore expect to see our own companies further down the supply chain, um, you know, getting a sufficient uh, share of that. We've signed an agreement recently with Boeing, which is seeing them invest more in the United Kingdom and opening up more opportunity for our SMEs in particular. And, um, you know, we want this to be two-way traffic. We are buying a lot of high-end American kit, F-35s from you, I think, Um, attack helicopters, um, the B-8 aircraft and so on. And we expect, uh, you know, a fair return from that. And we're also watching very closely, there's no secret about that, any tendency towards protectionism that might discriminate against uh, British companies in particular. Indeed, British companies involved in the United States defense chain as well. So these are issues that uh, we discuss with the administration. Fantastic. I think we have really a very short time for two quick questions, sir. I'm going to take the two right there, and then we will, uh, we will uh, close out. Sir. Hello, it's Gary O'Donoghue, BBC News. You talked a lot about um, military-to-military cooperation and um, the kit, as you put it. 
but um, have you had a chance since you've been here to express the UK government's displeasure about the leaks of intelligence, particularly around the time of the Manchester bombing and the damage that that could do to trust between the IC communities here and um, in London? Thank you, I'm Rear Admiral Thomas Ernst, German Defense Attaché here in Washington. Mr. Secretary, very recently, a former Chief of Defense, uh, General Lord Dennett, voiced his concern uh, because of those high-ticket items like carriers and a nuclear component, that there might be a moment one might be forced to reduce the army, the British army, from 80,000 to up to 65,000. Do you share this concern? Fine. Those, those two final questions. Uh, Gary first. Good to see you again, Gary. Um, so far as um, the intelligence leaks are concerned, yes, these were serious leaks at the beginning of a criminal investigation. Uh, we made that very clear to the United States. We received uh, um, reassurance from those, uh, uh, I think the particular agency are concerned, that uh, this information where it is shared will be properly protected in future. And we now regard that particular matter as closed. Uh, and it's important that it is um, closed off because there is a huge amount of intelligence sharing uh, that is necessary when you're fighting uh, terrorism. So it was unfortunate, um, but it's been dealt with. So far as uh, Lord Dannard's remarks are concerned, he's a former head of the army, um, I can reassure you we have no plan to reduce the size of the army down to uh, uh, 65,000. On the contrary, our manifesto commitment is to maintain the size of the armed forces, including the ability of the army to fight at uh, divisional level. And indeed, in the 2015 SDSR, we are increasing um, the size of the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. So we're not about cutting the, uh, uh, the army. Well, Secretary, thank you so much. This has been a rich and substantive discussion, and it's just a perfect reflection of the rich, deep, and abiding relationship that we have with the United Kingdom bilaterally and as well as multilaterally within NATO. Um, thank you for putting sort of the end point to a very busy, sometimes confusing week of international affairs and cutting through it and helping us to understand uh, what's important and the, the British uh, position on that. So with your warm applause, please thank me. Thank, thank you. Thank you.